listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. The scripture this morning is Mark 15, 1 through 15. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. Then the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further reply, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the festival, he used to release a prisoner for them, anyone for whom they asked. Now a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder during the insurrection. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. Then he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. Pilate spoke to them again. Then what do you wish me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Pilate asked them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Jim, for that reading. So for, you, uh, for those of you who do not know me, I'm James Weissey. Um, the reason that Alicia and Dan allowed me to preach today is I'm, like Alicia mentioned, I'm actually a student at Northeastern Seminary at Roberts Wesleyan University over in North Chile. Um, and I'm also Raya's husband, and no, I have nowhere near the vocal ability um, that she has. Um, I also have three kids that are 20, 18, and almost 16 years old. Um, and if you happen to follow me on Instagram, you'll know that I like coffee, books, podcasts, and sports. But um, that's enough about me. So here at Brockport First Baptist, we've been going over the Gospel of Mark for over a year. It's like crazy to think about that we've been able to pour into the, one of the four Gospels for this long. But it's been really a good study. Um, and we've also been going over the various scenes of Holy Week for a few months now. Um, Dan talked about a few weeks ago that usually we skip right, you know, we skip right through a lot of the stuff in Holy Week. Um, but we've been really able to dig into all the different scenes um, throughout the week. Um, I actually got really excited when Dan uh, invited me to preach a few months ago. Um, I'm a big fan of the Bible Project, so whenever they come out with a new episode on Monday, I'm always listening to it. Um, their tagline is that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Um, and it's something I really want to explore this week. Um, they like to talk about hyperlinks in the stories in the Bible. And I like to use the term parallels. Um, so we're going to look at a lot of the parallels between Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15, 
and a variety of the other parts, both of Mark's gospel and other parts of the Bible as well. Um, I even, I'm going to talk about recently, I had one parallel um, that a lot of people talk about in the Bible that got ruined for me recently. So um, that'll be a fun one. Um, Mark 15, 1 through 15 has two major sections, as you heard Jim read. The first part is the first five verses, and it's Jesus before Pilate. And then you have verses 6 through 15, which is Jesus and Barabbas. And there's also, I like to look at his five main characters in this section. There's Jesus, there's Barabbas, there's Pilate. Those are the big three that most people think about. Um, But there's also the chief priests and the rest of the Sanhedrin, like Dan has talked about the last few weeks. And then there's also the crowd. I think the crowd is one of the under... um, like emphasized characters in this in this story, um, and they I think they play an important part and it, and has a lot to teach us. Um, the first section has a number of parallels back to the sham trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin that Pastor Dan preached on two weeks ago. It starts out with the chief priests and the elders and scribes handing Jesus over to Pilate as soon as they could in the morning. That would be a typical time for a trial. In contrast. Dan talked about two weeks ago that the trial before the Sanhedrin took place at night when they're trying to hide everything that was going on because it was such a sham. The Sanhedrin actually bound Jesus to take him before Pilate, and this was actually a premeditated move to make Jesus look like a dangerous revolutionary who was worthy of death. This is in spite of the fact that Jesus was a pacifist and whose real crime was calling out the hypocrisy and corruption of the temple leadership. The first exchange between Pilate and Jesus is an echo from the sham trial before the Sanhedrin. If we look at verse 2 again, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. I like the way Jim read it this morning. Just as Jesus was asked if he was the Messiah by the high priest in Mark 14.61, Pilate asked about who Jesus is. I read Mark 15.1 through 15 in a variety of translations. That's one of the things um, at school that they they teach us is to not just read it in one translation, but to really look at a variety of translations to see what jumps out at you. And all of them had a period at the end of the you say so and not a question mark. Um, But like Dan talked about two weeks ago, you can imagine that Jesus was actually replying with sort of a question or sarcastically when being asked about being the king of the Jews. And it, and it really fits with a lot of the things that you see throughout Mark's gospel and the way Jesus is portrayed by Mark. Because you have, um, in Mark chapter 11, you had the, the question of where Jesus' authority came from, and he never answered it in a straightforward manner. There was the question of paying taxes to Caesar in Mark chapter 12, and another example where he didn't really give a straight answer. And, and, and so it, it, you get the same kind of thing here, and it's because in a lot of those instances, the people that are coming to Jesus with a question aren't coming in good faith. And in the same way, Pilate was not acting in good faith when he was asking Jesus if he was the king of the Jews. He, he was basically, what he was looking for was a reason to condemn Jesus to death. Because as the Roman governor of Jerusalem at the time, Pilate was in charge of keeping things under control. In a time of violent revolution, a man other than King Herod claiming to be king of the Jews would certainly not be something that's going to keep things calm. If we look throughout the Bible and, and all of world history, whenever there are two people making a claim to a monarchy, it almost never ends peacefully. 
So Pilate's goal was not to give Jesus a fair trial, but to avoid riots and revolution. All that to say, I believe it is reasonable to assume that Jesus gave a sarcastic answer when Pilate asked that question. Another reason to believe that Jesus did not answer the question straight is found in John 18, 33 through 38. And we can read along. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth? So again, you have Pilate asking the question, and, and along with the entire scene of Jesus before Pilate and Jesus and Barabbas, it, all, this whole section of, of Scripture shows up in all four of the, the Gospels. And Mark and Luke have the exchange between Pilate and Jesus in much the same way, where Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies, you say so. But John gives the much lengthier, wide-ranging response in the back and forth between Pilate and Jesus. And this is one of the, the ways that we can study scripture, that when we're looking at one of the gospel accounts, it's been a blessing that we get four gospel accounts. Because then you can go and you can actually search through some of those parallels and hyperlinks when you have scenes in the Gospels that actually show up in more than one Gospel. And I think it's really interesting that this one shows up in all four. And so it gives kind of credence to that when we look at John along with Mark, you get credence into how you could look at that answer to Pilate's question in a little different light. Another parallel to the sham trial is Jesus remaining silent when Pilate brings up the charges against him. Pilate was amazed that someone who was being charged with a capital crime would remain silent in the face of the charges that were made against Jesus. It begs the question of why would Jesus remain silent in the face of accusations that could lead to the death penalty? The scene then shifts to the festival for the celebration of Passover. So we'll read verses six through eight again. Now at the festival he used to release a prisoner for them, anyone for whom they asked. Now a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. Barabbas may be one of the most misunderstood characters in all of the Bible, right up there with Jesus. If you look at a lot of traditional representations of Barabbas, it's like some crazy, crazed, bloodthirsty person. And that's not really who Barabbas was, if you read the scripture. His name actually means son of the father. So this really is a scene about the son of the father compared to the son of man. Gospel of Mark scholar Ched Myers wrote that Mark describes Barabbas in a manner that has concrete sig historical significance as a sicarious terrorist. If the term sicari or dagger men sounds familiar, it's because that came up last month when Dan was preaching a tale of two traitors 
and he was talking about the last name of Judas Iscariot. So it could be that Barabbas was actually a member of the same revolutionary group as Judas was. What certainly seems to be true is that Barabbas was a frustrated, angry man who felt that he was defending God's chosen people in rebellion against the occupying Roman forces. He likely believed that his actions aligned with how God had acted in the past for Israel. So let's read the, the rest of the section again, this time going through verses 9 through 15. Then he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For I realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. Pilate spoke to them again. Then what do you wish me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. Pilate asked them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. In this section, you see the chief priests manipulating the crowd to get what they want from Pilate. This is even though verse 10 shows that Pilate knows Jesus is not guilty of any crime, but it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. This has some parallels to the death of John the Baptist in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Just as Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent but listened to the crowd, Herod knew that John the Baptist was innocent and a righteous and holy man and protected him initially when his wife Herodias wanted to kill him. Herodias had a grudge against John because, Herod, because he told Herod that it was not lawful that he had married his brother Philip's wife. While the chief priests used the crowd, Herodias used Herod's daughter to get what she wanted. In both instances, a righteous, holy, and innocent man was put to death. And in both cases, a ruler showed that they could not be trusted to act in any interest but their own shameful self-interest. Last week, Dan talked about the context that Mark was living in when he wrote his gospel. The context of the Jewish-Roman war adds another dimension to this Barabbas or Jesus duality. Barabbas is in contrast to Jesus because he is the type of revolutionary figure that Jesus is not. Barabbas represents the hopes of the crowd, many of the people Mark was writing to, and even some of the disciples, in that he was a worldly figure, a revolutionary committed to liberating God's people by violence. Barabbas wanted to make Israel great again by any means necessary. But according to Mark 8.33, this concept of the salvation of God's people is satanic. One popular parallel that people make in this is the scene of Jesus versus Barabbas and the two goats that are offered on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. Yes, indeed, everything does go back to the gospel according to Leviticus that Dan preached about last year. It was all ex I was all excited to talk about this parallel since the idea that Jesus was a scapegoat that was sacrificed for all our sins is a popular one. I was especially excited after listening to the July 4th episode of the Bible Project podcast this year because they went into deep detail about the two goats in Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement, and, and it, was, it, was, it was really good. But then a few weeks ago, it, got, it all got ruined for me. Um, I opened up my email, and I get a devotional every day called With God Daily from Sky Jathani. And he pointed out a few things that go unmentioned by most people. First, he points out how Jesus has often been referred to as the Lamb of God, but he's never been referred to as a goat. And in Leviticus 16, 
it is two goats that are offered up. The other major issue is that the scapegoat that all of the sins and transgressions are placed onto, and they actually the picture for the Leviticus one, it's like a cool picture, they're placing their hands on the goat. Um, that, it, that goat was the one that was sent off into the wilderness for Azazel, and it was the other goat that was actually killed for a sin offering to the Lord. So that parallel is another one that, you know, it, it kind of it got ruined for me because you can see that if you wanted to say that Jesus is a scapegoat, then he should have been the one to live. And if Barabbas was the goat that's going to be offered up as a sacrifice, he should have been the one that was put to death. Last week, Pastor Dan asked, why does this story get remembered? This question is, why does this story show up in, this week's question is, why does this story show up in all four gospel accounts? There are not as many scenes that show up in all four gospel accounts as you may think. For instance, the birth of Jesus only shows up in two gospel accounts. Mark and John start their gospel accounts when Jesus is already an adult. Ultimately, I don't know why it shows up in all four gospels, but I think it's a fun question to ponder, and it may um, help us to take this one a little bit more seriously than we might some other stories. Um, the takeaways that came to me while studying this passage of Mark were three more questions that we can kind of um, ponder as we go throughout our week. The first question I came up with, and the most obvious one to me that stuck, jumped out to me, was who is stirring us up? Like the chief priest stirring up the crowd to get what they wanted, we have people trying to influence us to act in their best interests instead of our own. If anyone has watched the documentary entitled The Social Dilemma, you will know how social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter have evolved to increase the emotional response to posts as they have found that posts that create a strong emotional response keep people on the platform longer. So that is why you might notice that cute baby or puppy photos have been replaced by the political posts that aim to elicit a strong emotional response in the reader of the headline. As we all know, these headlines, these kinds of headlines have a nickname. They're called clickbait. Um, the reason this has become so popular on social media is due to the fact that most social media platforms are free to consume. They have turned to monetizing our attention. So if they lose our attention, they lose money. And the only way they want us to leave their platform is by clicking on an ad that someone paid them for us to click. The same type of thing has happened in traditional media with talk radio, news networks, tabloid newspapers. The only thing that has changed is that many people, myself included, pay for a device that we carry with us almost 24 hours a day that is designed for us to consume media and dominate our attention. A few ways we can manage these people that are trying to influence us is to curate the media that we consume. If we feel like Facebook or Twitter or any other app is not serving us, we can make the choice to un uninstall it from our phone. If uninstalling Facebook is too big a leap for you, another smaller step and one that I've taken is to turn off notifications for any apps like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, something that I haven't gotten to quite yet, but I know a lot of people have, is taking a weekly Sabbath from social media or their smartphones entirely. It's another way that we can limit the ways that people can influence us using these platforms. The second question that came to me is, why do we choose the violent one over the silent one? Like I mentioned earlier, I really like to read. In March of this year, I read two books that reflect this duality really well. 
First, I read Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation by Dr. Kristen Kobes Dumais. And then later in that month, I read Exactly As You Are, The Life and Faith of Mr. Rogers by Shea Tuttle. I do not know of any better modern examples of a violent revolutionary versus a nonviolent revolutionary than John Wayne versus Fred Rogers. In Jesus and John Wayne, Dr. Dumay records the history of how the religious right came to be in the United States and how they propped up ideas like a rugged, violent masculinity as the epitome of the Christian man. Fred Rogers, on the other hand, used television to positively influence millions of children in the United States. He asked them to be his neighbor, and he lived out his Christian faith by loving all sorts of neighbors just the way they are. The challenge becomes, how can we deprogram ourselves when we find ourselves naturally drawn to people that aim for changes that we want to see, but in ways that are not those of Jesus? Whether it's a politician from the party we align ourselves with who is making brash statements to own the other party, or to someone at a protest for a cause we support who punches someone who is yelling things that we disagree with with every ounce of our being. Instead of being a Christian that chooses to excuse violent action, we need to be a Christian that chooses to follow those who follow the example of Christ. And the final question to ponder is, how do we respond to friends and family who have very different Christian worldviews than we do? During last week's sermon talk back, this was a question that multiple people were wrestling with. As we go through life in a time and place that is so polarized between this group and that group, whether it is political parties or the way that we view the gospel of Christ and what it means to live out a life that is faithful to what Jesus taught and the way that Jesus lived, the divide the divergence of opinion seems to be widening, and working together for the common good seems to be less of a realistic option. If we try to reach across the aisle or the Thanksgiving dinner table, there tend to be, we tend to get rejected for our efforts, and we also can have people that will call us out for seemingly going against what our group is supposed to do and the way we're supposed to behave. The example that Jesus gives us in Mark chapter 15 verses 1 through 15 is a tough one for me. His example to be silent in the face of false accusations. And then he lived out his words that he spoke in John 15, 13, and he laid down his life for his friends, including Barabbas. While we may not be asked to lay down our lives for people with different political, cultural, and religious views than our own, we are called to love them. The challenge is to discern when it is time to speak and when it is time to be silent. We live in a time where people talk about how silence is violence. We should not remain silent in the face of racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, or any other form of discrimination. But we also need to discern when the action of silently standing firmly in our convictions speaks louder and more lovingly than emotional words ever can. And more often than we want to admit, being silent like Jesus can be the most loving thing we can do when faced with people who disagree with us. Let us pray. God, give me grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, 
trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.